0: In the book of Luke, chapter number 23, let's begin this morning in uh, verse number 32. The Bible says two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with him, with Jesus. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them. For they know not what they do. And they cast lots to divide his garments. And the people stood by, watching. But the rulers scoffed at him, saying, He saved others, let him save himself if he is the Christ of God, the Chosen One. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine and saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was also an inscription over him. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, truly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Familiar words for a lot of us. But the longer I linger over these and the more I push out the intrusive thoughts of life as we know it, uh, the more impacted my heart becomes, the older I get. We don't rush past the cross. It is the center point of the Christian message and we entered through the cross into the kingdom. But the danger is that we become so used to the message of the cross that it loses its grip on our soul. And so it's a great day for us to just go back into that place where the gospel writer, Dr. Luke, the physician, details out for us a portion of what happened on that day 2,000 years ago outside of Jerusalem when the Son of God, who became the Son of Man, became the Lamb of God to pay for your sin and mine. So let me give you three points this morning. And they they come to us by way of an imperative, by way of me telling you something to do. And here's the first one. I want you to open your eyes and behold the scene. I want you to soak it in. Let's let the visual of what's going on here impact us. First of all, we see a hopeless pair of prisoners in verse number 32. The Bible says two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with Jesus. One of the things to remember is that Jesus Christ was not the only one that was crucified in his day. Crucifixion was an element of Roman judicial systems. Where some of the worst criminals were hung upon crosses, impaled to crosses in many different positions, typically outstretched with the arms stretched to the point where they come out of socket, and then the feet on top of each other, their hands nailed to the cross, and the feet nailed to the cross. And they would do this, and the message was this don't mess with Rome. Don't mess with Rome. Don't break our laws. Don't rebel. These two men that were with Jesus, the other gospel writers, tell us that they were thieves. They were robbers. And they were receiving the death penalty for their crimes. And as sovereign providence would have it, on the day they were being crucified, there was God the Son also being crucified. By the way, this was no accident because in Isaiah chapter 53, we are told in verse number 12 that Jesus, the Messiah, would be numbered with the transgressor that he would be viewed upon from the human perspective as one more criminal worthy of death, and he would be lumped in with the rest of humanity. Well, I don't only want you to see these two men, these two uh, prisoners who were literally living out their last hours, but I want you to see something else. I want you to get this ominous backdrop of fear. As they were making their way out of the city, the Bible says they came to the place that is called the place of the skull. You may know it better as Golgotha. You may also know the term Calvary, but they all refer to the same place, somewhere outside of the city of Jerusalem, after Jesus had been beaten, after he had been whipped, his back shredded, his beard plucked off in places from his face, a crown of long thorns pressed into his brow. So the the writer uh, Isaiah said centuries before that he was so badly marred that he didn't look human. And then they had him carry the crossbeam of the cross on his back. And so there he is under torturous pain and then moving his way through the streets of Jerusalem while the crowd scoffed at him and mocked him and laughed at him and spit on him. Ultimately, he stumbled and a, a man from Africa was called out of the crowd to pick up and carry it up to the top of Golgotha. And there they made their way there. And that ominous backdrop was the place of the skull. Everything that day smacked of death. The blood, the cries, the agony. Jesus utterly alone, except for one disciple who came and his mother that was there and some of the other women. But in the essence, everybody had abandoned Jesus and he bore the wrath of the Father all on his own. I want to tell you something that isn't written with Scripture, but I I am convinced it's true. Feel free to disagree with me if you don't believe this. But I want to submit to you that all around Golgotha, All around Jerusalem, the heavenlies were filled with demons coming to see their greatest triumph. Every agent of hell, Satan himself, mingling in that crowd today because everything that they had fought for, everything that they had planned for, everything that they had strategized for, and their wicked, diabolical, deceived, and depraved minds, they believed that now we've got them. And they laughed hysterically when the nails pierced into the Son of God. in verse 33 we see that it was a cruel and a common execution it's very succinct as Luke writes a typical physician just getting straight to the facts it says there they crucified him and the criminals one on his right and one on his left I've already mentioned to you what a crucifixion might have looked like in that day, but I can tell you it was um, contrived. It was put together in order to inflict the greatest amount of suffering on the person that was being crucified. Uh, The nails, the Roman spikes, long and wide, driven through the base of the hand right here uh, above the wrist. The feet typically laid on top of each other and one long spike driven through them. Underneath the feet, there was a little piece of wood oftentimes that would in, in essence, bring relief to the one hung on the cross, because the criminal would, would push up on them to alleviate the, the, the lungs being filled where he could not breathe, and it would actually prolong the death. Death by crucifixion was agony, because let me tell you what the victim ultimately succumbed to. It was he didn't bleed out. He died of asphy- asphyxiation. He suffocates. It was slow. It was agonizing. Uh, extra-biblical history records that some would be up on those crosses for days before they finally died. This was the wage for my sin. This was the payment placed upon God the Son for the crimes and the treason that I had committed against the Lord. By the way, I know who the two criminals were. One was me and one was you. The Bible tells us in the book of Deuteronomy in chapter number 21 and verse number 23, it mentions it again in Galatians 3.13, that the one who is hung on a cross is cursed. I want you to think about this with me. My aim is not to make anybody feel guilty. My aim is for us to take a long sober look at the cross this morning and to welcome the Holy Spirit to do whatever he wants to do in each heart but I want you to think of the indignity of it. God the Son, in full agreement with God the Father and God the Spirit, in eternity past, God the Son agrees to come to planet Earth. He's born from the womb of a virgin named Mary, a peasant girl, a teenager in the youth group. For Mary's whole life, she would be stigmatized because nobody would believe that the Holy Spirit would be conceived in her. She was known as loose and immoral, and Jesus was known as one who was born of fornication. It was a stigma on them forever. So he grew up stigmatized, and for 30 years, we don't really hear anything of Jesus. After his birth, there's a blip on the radar. The gospel writers tell us that at age 12, he went to the temple, and he was schooling the doctors of the Hebrew law. Interesting thought. But then there's this long 18 years of silence before he comes upon the scene and he bursts upon it. John the Baptist, who's been baptizing and calling Israel to repentance, looks and sees his cousin Jesus coming over the hill and he says, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. From the very onset, Jesus was known as the one who would pay for sin, but the way he paid it. Is mind blowing. It's staggering that he who is the ultimate source of every blessing became a curse on that tree. He took upon him the full wrath of God for every sin committed by every person, for every generation, for all of time. It was that fury that hit Jesus willingly. It was that experience that caused him to cry out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That even the Father turned his back on Jesus in the moment of the atonement. That he bore it utterly alone, taking the curse. By the way, uh, we're also taught that um, in 2 Corinthians 5, 21, that the one who committed no sin was made to become sin so that you and I might become the righteousness of God. Is a divine transaction, freely offered to anybody who would believe, anybody in a moment of submission and contrition and receptivity saying yes to this offer. Anyone can be pardoned. Anyone can move out from under the curse. Anyone can receive the Son of God, Jesus Christ, as Lord. Interestingly enough, we have a picture of how this works out in time because uh, we've already read out of the two thieves, one would say yes and one would say no. That's the way it's going to happen this morning. Some will say yes, and some, for whatever reason, will say no. So as we behold that scene, criminals, a place of death, and there the puncturing of his hands and his feet, they lift up the the vertical beam, they lift it up with the victim impaled upon the cross beam, and they situate it into a hole that's pre-dug, and there they hang. Artists have been kind putting a loincloth on the Son of God, but to increase the indignity and the shame, they were always crucified naked. And there he is, God, dying for mankind. So we're going to now move into verse 34 and 38, and I want you, instead of looking, I want you to close your ears or close your eyes and open your ears. Let's listen to what is said. First of all, here are these merciful words of Jesus in verse 34. Jesus, while hanging on the cross, says to the Father, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. I don't know which of the seven sayings of Jesus on the cross stagger me the most. It might be this one. Theologically, I think it's my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I don't, I don't understand how God the Father completely severed in that moment from God the Son while he was being made sin. That, that just that blows my mind. But this is the one, humanly, that I wrestle with the most. As he's dying, as he's suffering, as they're taunting him, as they're rejecting him, as they're wagging their heads at him, as they're screaming at him, even on the right and the left, because both of the criminals began the same way. They both began taunting Jesus and mocking Jesus from either side. And all of that is going on, and the merciful cry of Jesus Christ is, Father, forgive them. They cannot comprehend the magnitude of what they're doing. He's an intercessor while he's on the cross. My friends, let's remember what could have happened. And God would still be just if it had happened. He could have summoned every angel in heaven's innumerable forces to rain down the most dreadful and painful fire that would have consumed them all. He could have done that and he would have still been holy and just. He himself could have come down off the cross, miraculous, signs, wonders, moving from off of the cross, coming and descending in the air to the ground and would have removed all doubt that this is the Messiah. He could have done that. He could have simply pronounced a curse on them, the ones who were at the foot of the cross, rolling dice, playing games in the the foot of the cross and tearing his garments in half and selling them off. He he could have simply handpicked them and picked them off one by one. He could have done all of those things, but that wasn't his mission. Jesus's mission was not and is not currently a mission of judgment. It's a mission of mercy. It's a mission of pardon. It's a mission of forgiveness. And before we point fingers at everybody in the crowd that day, I just wanna tell you though it is difficult for us to put ourselves in that same category of sinner. But I'm going to tell you, maybe our words are different. Maybe our actions are different. But ultimately, every life screams out prior to conversion, I don't want you as my king. Every life. It's manifested in a thousand different ways from a a simple rebellion of a child who knows better, all the way to a grown adult who hides his or her sins on a regular basis. It all says the same thing. We don't want you to rule over us. Stay on the cross. Jesus cries out, Father, forgive them. Do you know the power of forgiveness? Have you experienced it? One of the heavy artillery weapons of Satan is shame and guilt. I don't know how it all works in the the realm of darkness I I just know that this happens even to Christians all of our sins all of our failures every wrong we've ever done some of the big ones maybe some of the little ones but it is the nature of Satan to approach you as often and as as intensely as possible to accuse you to remind you to tell you why you're unworthy, to tell you that you're not saved, to tell you that you're worthy of rejection. And over that cascading volume of accusation and shame and guilt, you gotta hear the Savior saying, Father, forgive this one, forgive her, forgive him. There's something that transforms the life when you experience the forgiveness of Jesus. You become a new creation Forgiveness frees you. It is chains falling off of you. You may not have to know how to walk yet as a believer, but you're free to walk. Prior to that forgiveness, you're chained. You're guilty. You're you're living under the condemnation that is attached to sin until you say, yes, I believe this prayer for forgiveness applies to me. I trust what you did. I submit to you. I surrender to you. I receive you, Jesus. Now ask the Father to forgive me. And by the way, Jesus gets his prayers answered, amen? So when he says, Father, forgive them, they're forgiven. Listen, however, in contrast in verse 34 to the cutting words of the religious. There's a lot of religion surrounding the cross that day. The Bible says that they cast lots to divide his garments. That was the Roman soldiers. But then it mentions in verse 35 that the people stood by watching while the rulers scoffed at Jesus, just, let's just hear it. He saved others. Let him save himself if he is the Christ the, of God, the chosen one. Over and over again. Over and over again. Words like that pummeling him. Coming from people that as creator he made. Coming from people as Redeemer that he would have saved. Coming from the crowd, a cacophony of of words hurled at him, and he took it all. Jesus had walked around in their midst for three years. He healed people. If they couldn't hear, he caused them to hear. If they couldn't see and they asked, he caused them to see. So many of them, more than are accounted for individually in Scripture. Sometimes we're told that Jesus healed them all. And we don't know if it was one, two, or a thousand. On top of the healings that he performed, the exorcisms, in a land where hell was, was in, it had it in its grips and people were plagued by the demonic, when the presence of the Son of God steps in, the demons themselves would cry out, What do you have to do with us? And he would deliver people from demons. By the way, he raised the dead. Luke chapter 7, he interrupted a funeral, he said, Fella, you don't need that cast, stand up. The guy gets up, Jesus presents the young man back to his mother. He raised a little girl from the dead who had just been dead for a few hours and gave her back to her parents. And he raised Lazarus from the dead who had been in the grave and had already begun to decay. And Jesus just showed himself as as sovereign over the power of death. People knew that. They saw the healings, they saw the exorcisms, they saw the resurrections, they heard him preach. The testimony of Jesus in his day is, this man speaks with authority. Nobody's ever preached like him. So they saw the ways, they saw the works, and they heard the words, and then in the end they said, away with him. That is the blindness and the depravity of dead religion. By the way, these people were the most religious people in the land who orchestrated the death. They were moral They were hyper conservative. They kept the law. They memorized the Torah. They moved in such authority and power in the land, all in their minds under the glory of Yahweh. Yet when Yahweh sent his son, Yeshua, they said to him, no, we will not have this man to rule over us. And they moved among the crowd that day in front of Pilate, and they, they, they called out and they said, when he asked whether we should receive Barabbas or Jesus, everyone say, Barabbas, give us Barabbas. And when he asked what we should do with, with Jesus, say, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. That's exactly what happened. When I was an unbeliever, And I was one of those breed of unbeliever that um, I I knew enough of the Bible to make me miserable. I'd never yielded to it, so it never made me happy. The Bible for me was something to be avoided, but frequently in in my wandering years, somebody would witness to me or share the gospel with me. And and what was amazing is I, I believed all of the facts about Jesus. There was never a time where I did not believe the facts about Jesus. But how many of you know every demon in hell and Satan himself believe the facts about Jesus? The Bible says they believe it and know it so well that they tremble. It's not believing the data. Believing the data doesn't get anybody into a relationship with God the Father. That's why I'm very careful not to say, just pray this prayer and you'll go to heaven. My evangelist brothers and sisters, I want to encourage you. Don't get them prematurely to pray some prayer so you can go back and tell how many got saved. We must recognize that salvation is a surrender. And where there is no surrender, there can be no salvation. Our churches, listen to me, I believe one of the sweeping revival, uh, aspects of the sweeping revival that is beginning is that church members are gonna be born again. People that have been in church their whole life and they're going to get hit by the Holy Spirit and recognize I have an academic understanding of the facts of the gospel, but I have never surrendered my soul to Jesus. And man, when that happens and our churches are no longer half filled with religious people, half filled with saved people, but filled with saved people who are bringing in lost people, that is when we're going to see the glory of God in ways that we've never seen before. Listen to these skeptical words of the pagans in verse number 36. The Bible says the soldiers also mocked Jesus, coming up and offering him sour wine and saying, again, if you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. What a temptation. We don't make much of this very often when we talk about the cross. But over and over again, as he's in physical agony, as he's been abandoned by his peers and his disciples, As everybody in the crowd is against him, as the Father has turned his back on the Son, and the temptation over and over again is, save yourself, save yourself, save yourself, save yourself. And he could have. Had he not been motivated by two things, motivated motivated first and foremost by the glory of the Father, he came to do the will of the Father. He came to complete his assignment he came to complete the work that the Father and he and the Holy Spirit had agreed on in eternity past. He came to it. He was down to the last hour. And Satan is fueling that wicked congregation of people, telling him, save yourself, save yourself, save yourself. Attacking his identity. Are you really the Messiah? Are you really the Son of God? we Will prove it. And he didn't. In verse 38, we hear the prophetic words of Pilate. There was also an inscription over him, this is what it said, this is the king of the Jews. Pilate had been a willing partner in the crucifixion of Jesus. He was reluctant, but he was a coward. He had opportunities to uh, do something greater than to crucify the Messiah of the Jews, But he chose, as most politicians do, to sell out his soul in order to get the will of the most powerful people. And he did that. And as they were taking Jesus away after Pilate had been condemned, this is what they did to criminals back then. When they were getting ready to be crucified, they would do exactly what Pilate did. They would inscribe, usually on a piece of wood, and they would hang it around the criminal's neck. And on that piece of wood would be the charges for which they were about to be executed. And Jesus' charge was this. This is the king of the Jews. This infuriated the religious leaders. They came to Pilate and they said, "Uh, we'd like you to edit that a little bit. If you don't mind, do a strike through on that. Add these two words. He said he was the king of the Jews. And Pilate was sick of it. And he said, what I've written, I've written. So there on that miserable scene on Golgotha's Hill, The highest thing on the hill was the declaration of truth that Jesus Christ is the king of the Jews. In essence, God had magnified his word above his name in that moment. The name of Jesus was being scorned, but the truth of God, the word of God, this is the king. This is the Messiah. Um, I'll just say this. It's not in the text, but just to remind you. That king is coming back here. <laughs> no, he's coming back here. The entire planet will be ruled by a Jewish king before whom every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Christos kurios. Christ is Lord. Lord. And in that statement, in that decree, when all living things, every human, every demon, and every holy angel will declare, Jesus Christ is Lord. And this king is the one hanging on that tree that day. So we go down into the very last chunk of verses. And I'm going to call on you to do something. To humble your heart and just soak in the grace. Look at what happens with one of these criminals and look how Jesus responds. First of all I want you to note the presumption at the cross in verse 39. One of the criminals who was hanged railed at Jesus, means he went off on him, saying are you not the Christ? Then save yourself by the way, save us." I don't know his heart. I can only judge on his words. but the words are completely presumptuous. They're words from a person that thinks they, they're owed something. Save us." He wanted on-demand salvation apart from surrender. There was nothing from his heart that validated Jesus Christ as Lord. There was nothing that in, his, in his lips that spoke of honoring Jesus as Messiah. There was an entitled demand that he deserved to be saved right now. Save me, save us, save yourself. That wasn't a one-time only occurrence hear me on this this may have a little sting to it there's the possibility that things can happen in our life that jade us towards god that embitter us that make us feel as if god blew it with our lives it can come in a thousand different questions why did i lose this person Why was I abused? Why was I hurt? Why was I abandoned? How come I can't be blessed when everybody else gets blessed? Why am I still in pain? It's always in the context of some loss that presumption wants to rise up because there is kind of embedded in the depravity of man a sense of entitlement. We erroneously think that he owes us something. By the way, that kind of thought is just, is, is fertilized by our culture. Our culture tells us, it's all about you. It should be all about you. It's always been about you. Anybody that makes you feel bad about yourself for even a second, they're not looking out for you. That's why we've redefined love. Love is now, we define love as you making me feel good about me. Even if it's not true, just make me feel good about me and I'll feel loved. Why? Because I feel I'm entitled to feel good about myself, even at the expense of you or your truth. And so this criminal looks over to him and says, save me, but I won't surrender. Now, he didn't say it with his lips, but that's what his heart was beating. He's dying. He's moments away from eternity. And he's making demands on God. I don't know where any of us are today I know where I am I kind of know probably where my family is but I don't know where you are and I appreciate the fact that every single one of us has endured pain heartbreak disappointment and some measure of suffering that's what we all have in common. Doesn't matter what color you are, It doesn't matter what culture you came from, doesn't matter where you were born, it doesn't matter what socioeconomic group you are in, doesn't matter where you vote in November, whether this side, this side, or in the middle, none of that matters. The one thing that binds us all together is that we understand what it means to hurt. And it's all over the world. But there's something that we have to be careful of, because the Lord wants to come to us in the pain and bring us forth out of the substance of the pain. The shadow of death passes over us, but the substance of death he took. So, well, Jeff, I just don't think if God loved me, I would hurt. Friends, did he love his son? Because his son in this scene was hurting worse than he had ever hurt before. God didn't even spare his own son from that part of the pilgrimage on earth that involves pain and hurt and rejection and abandonment jesus had to be tempted in all points like we were and yet he never sinned so that he might be the perfect spotless lamb of god the sacrifice the substitute for your sins and for mine so the criminal demands that god bless him and i pray that that's not in any of our hearts and if it is today i would say that if you will bring that presumption to jesus You're going to find that he is merciful, compassionate, gracious, and full of pardon. He won't scold you. He won't shame you. He won't berate you. He won't belittle you. But if you will come and say, Lord, the hurt, the disappointment, the pain, the fear, all of that, which I have in part blamed you for, I bring that to you and I confess that I was wrong. And I surrender And you will meet the Jesus that is about to be displayed to the other criminal. Look in verse number 40. And we'll experience the contrition at the cross. The other criminal rebuked the first criminal. And this is what he said. Do you not fear God seeing that we are condemned in the same way and yet we deserve our condemnation? But don't you see that the man in the middle has done nothing wrong? He's done nothing. I don't know that this isn't the greatest moment of faith in the New Testament. He says, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. What about that scene looked royal? Nothing. In the natural, you see a beaten and bloodied, disfigured, ripped open man with a crown of thorns in his head, and everybody in the scene is mocking at him and laughing at him. And even for a short time, Jesus was on the cross six hours, and for a portion of that six hours, this criminal, who is now contrite and broken, had been part of the crew that was screaming at Jesus and mocking Jesus, but somewhere in the response, somewhere in the midst of what was going on there, faith was born in that criminal's heart. He stopped seeing Jesus in the natural. He stopped regarding him according to the flesh. Something happened in the midst of all the demonic activity swirling around Golgotha that day, there was also a Holy Spirit presence that opened this criminal's heart up to the Son of God, who was giving the atonement for his very sins, right next to him. And he saw the natural, the, the natural senses would have seen that whole setting and said, that's no king. But there was something in that man's heart where he shifted. That beautiful shift. Do you know about that shift? Have you experienced that shift? That shift when you went from darkness to light? That shift where you went from unbelief to belief? That shift where you went from saying, "Uh uh-uh, to saying, please? There's a whole lot of dynamics involved in that shift, but the one thing I know is that when this man understood spiritually who Jesus was, he gives this great declaration of faith. Hey, when your kingdom happens, remember me. He not only believed in Jesus theologically as the Messiah, he anticipated that Jesus' last scene would not be impaled to a cross, but there was a kingdom coming. That's a guy that I cannot wait to meet when we get into glory. By the way, um, he had wasted his whole life, okay? But hallelujah, aren't you glad there's dying grace? There's grace. That's why we never give up on anybody. We never give up on anybody. This was this man's last moment. And in that last moment, God says, I'm still willing. And he says, I am too. Lord, remember me. That's verse 42. Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. It's not a very religious-sounding prayer, is it? No these, no thou's, no veriles, No doctrine. By the way, no baptism. Just Remember me. It's relational. It's relational. That's what Jesus came to do. He didn't come to cram us into a box of Judeo-Christian theology. I'm a big theology guy. I'm a big doctrine guy. I'm not saying that it's not important, but I'm, I am saying this. That's not what our ultimate calling is. Our ultimate calling mimics Adam's original calling. What was it? To walk with God. To walk with God. You don't read anywhere in the book of Genesis where God sat Adam down and said, let me tell you the uh, theology of the creation. He just walked with them in paradise. Some of you are here today and you've been hurt and you've been jaded and you're skeptical about all of this. I get it. I get it. And listen, I mean, I really get it. The common saying is I don't believe in organized religion. I'm going to join you in that. Organized religion is not my thing. This is an organized religion, by the way. This is a group of broken people who found themselves guilty before the Son of God one day and in their own expression said, just remember me. Just remember me me. So the last verse is the most beautiful of the whole passage. Verse 43. Just rejoice in the effect of the cross. Jesus says to him, truly I say to you today you'll be with me. Not here. In paradise. Now, I want you to let the impact of that just kind of get you for a moment. Worship team, y'all can please come up. (laughs) A man who had wasted his whole life, who was experiencing the execution for his last crimes in horrific pain and absolute open spectacled shame whispers through a dry throat, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And the answer to that feeble prayer of that broken sinner is, hold on a minute, you and me are going together to my father's paradise. You will be with me today in paradise 2 Corinthians 5.8 teaches us that when the Christian, for the Christian to be absent from his or her body is to be immediately in the presence of the Lord. Now listen, the beautiful byproduct of coming to Christ is that you get to spend eternity with him. That's, but, but listen, that's actually not the core of the gospel. The gospel is not primarily about transportation. Boo! It's not transportation, it's transformation. That he wants to make you, God the Father wants to make you like God the Son. And so what he calls us to is a partnership. We're not equal partners, I get that. But nonetheless, it's a partnership. He says, I want you to trust me. I want you to yield to me. I want you to believe in me. And I want you to take my hand and I want you to walk with me all of your years. And I'm going to teach you and I'm going to talk to you. There are going to be times where I'm going to let you run a little bit ahead of me. But I've got my eye on you. Don't be afraid. There will be other times, child, where I'm moving a little too quickly and you don't want to go where I'm going. But I'm going to tell you, when I grab your hand and I just tell you, you're coming, I'm doing it because I'm wise and I'd never lead you into anything that I didn't accompany you in. And he says, You know, I'm going to provide for you. Some will have more child, some will have less, but I'm going to give you exactly what you need when you need it. That's my gift to you. And I want you to learn me because, as as your heavenly father, my joy is I'm going to make you like the one sitting on the throne. Do you see him? That's my one and only son, my only begotten son. That's the king that opened up his body to pay the price for you and I to take this walk together. And I want you to know that I love you and I always will. You're going to end up there one day. But really, what I'm doing for you is not just to transport you there. It's that I just want to look into your eyes down here. And I want you to be convinced that I'm your Abba, I'm your daddy. I love you. You see, the goal of the gospel is deep friendship with God. Intimate, deep, lasting friendship with God. So today, when I give this call to come to Christ, I'm not saying come to our version of religion. I'm not even saying come and become a Christian. I'm just telling you, that the Father loves you. And he has declared that nobody comes unto him except through the Son. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and nobody comes to the Father unless they come through me. But the good news of the gospel is, you can come through him. And You can do it today. Would you stand to your feet?